Hello, hi there, welcome and thank you for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. While we are, among everyone else, very excited for the return of Premier League football this week, we're also equally excited about the return of Serie A. And in the middle of lockdown, Michael and I read a piece by James Horncastle about Sandro Tonali, a young midfielder lighting up Serie A with Brescia. And, well, it prompted a fair few questions from us. We wanted to find out about this current crop of Italian midfield players and how they compare to previous generations and how that role has developed within Italian football over the last five to ten years. So James was the obvious person to speak to as the Athletics Italian football expert, the Italian football writer. James and Michael both super busy at the moment on site, writing pieces all day, every day. And if you haven't subscribed to the Athletics site, well, it is a very good time to do so because the site is packed with goodness at the moment. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. That's all one word, zonal marking will get you a 40% discount. So do sign up to The Athletic today and enjoy everything that it has to offer. And please enjoy this episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast, talking about the development of Italian midfield players. It feels like a, a classic ZM pod topic. Delighted to be joined by Michael Cox and James Horncastle. So let's get stuck in. This is a fascinating topic, one that you've written on site, focusing on Tonali. And and that's where we're going to start here. But we are going to delve a little bit deeper into Italian football and specifically central midfield players, the past and the present, the similarities and the differences over the years as well. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking would be a good place to start if you're not already a subscriber to the Athletic site and app. That's where you could read uh, the piece about Sandro Tonali by James, all sorts of other good Italian football content uh, from him and also Michael's various bits and bobs on site, always high quality. Uh, Give that a go. Now, James, in your piece about Tonali, you start by saying no player challenges our biases more in Italian football than Sandro Tonali. Now, we love to challenge biases. In fact, we live to challenge them on this pod. So I'm keen to hear more. What is he all about? Well, look, I mean, I think most of our listeners, if they've heard of Sandro Tonali, will know him as the new Pirlo. They've probably gone onto YouTube, typed his name in and found a video which will say, Sandro Tonali, the new Pirlo, welcome to Arsenal, skills and vision, <laughs> HD. A backing like track. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's true. He looks like Andrea Pirlo. He's got the same flowing locks, um, uh, just as I do, but I'm not Pirlo either. Um <laughs> He plays in the same position as Pirlo and he plays for the club Brescia, which is where Pirlo really came into his own and made that deep-lying playmaker role his own as well. So if you join up all the dots, it seems like this was written in the stars, um, that Tenali was uh, basically put on this planet to replace uh, Andrea Pirlo once he retired. But... If you watch him closely, if you even listen to him or talk to some of his coaches, um, you know, I think with him, he he basically says, look, I don't see myself in, in Pirlo. Sure, I like to do some of the things that he does, like those kind of long diagonal passes uh, into feet uh, for a, a winger or a striker. Um, but I also have 
yeah, sides to my game that are a little bit like Gattuso. I like to run in and, and get into tackles. I like to throw myself about a bit. I like to bring the ball out from the back and kind of dash forward with a dynamism that I don't think you would necessarily associate um, with with Andrea Pirlo. And uh, yeah, I, I think that is 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 one of the re- I think one of the reasons why he says that is basically to shift expectation away from him because so much expectation has been heaped on his shoulders. And also, it doesn't really suit his club and his owner, Massimo Cellino, well, the, the, the owner of the club, Massimo Cellino, who basically wants to market this player to all of Europe as the new Pirlo, because it would probably add about 20 million onto his asking price. So I think, you know, the, the, the piece was really a myth buster there, is to explain that um, there are other sides to his game, aside from basically playing the regista, the, the director role, where he's entrusted to kind of yeah, set the tempo for a team, be the metronome for the team, playmate for the team. Um, I think there's there's other sides to his game um, than that. And uh, I'm sure we'll discuss them over the course of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's interesting to have a club like Brescia, who have produced Pirlo and now Tonali, um, whether or not they are the same player. Uh, that is kind of to the, to the side here. It, it's it's pretty notable. Uh, they are also Michael rock bottom of Serie A with 16 points from 26 games. So you know it's not all good. What's most notable about Brescia for you, Michael? I mean, I think over the years they've been one of the clubs in Serie A. Maybe you could say one of the few clubs in Serie A who have often been committed to taking a chance on creative players, on talented players. I mean, probably the first I ever heard about Brescia was when George Hadji was there in the mid 90s. In, in later times, of course, they took, a, they took a chance, if you like, on Roberto Baggio. And that might seem strange to use that phrase about one of the greatest Italian footballers of all time. But this was a time where the big clubs really had given up on Baggio. He hadn't really fitted into various systems at Inter and Juventus and Milan. And he went to, to Brescia and extended his career by four years to the extent everyone wanted him back in the national side, which, which didn't really happen. But um, there's been a few examples of that. I mean, this was the club where... Yeah, they, they took Pirlo on loan from uh, from Inter and, and really changed him into a, a different player, turned him from a, a proper number 10 to a deep-line midfielder. When Pep Guardiola left Barcelona in 2001 and, and was really struggling to find a club because not many teams across Europe played with a real deep-lying playmaker in his mould. It was Brescia who, who went for him and gave him an opportunity and he didn't play there for too, too long. He had a couple of spells there. Um, either side of a, a short stint at Roma where he played even less actually but yeah that was his last experience in uh, in a major league and also I mean a couple of more obscure players someone who I'm sure James will be you know familiar with and will remember very well is a, a player called Domenico Morfeo who was um, another really talented number 10 at that time and um, again, didn't really get his opportunities with Milan, Fiorentina. He played a little bit more, but again, it was Brescia where I remember him kind of rejuvenating his his career and playing as a proper number ten and scoring lots of very close range free kicks. He was very good at. So yeah, they're just one of those clubs who, who they've got a bit of a culture about them. I think even it sounds silly, but even just the fact they've got a very distinctive shirt, you know, with the big white V on the front, it's it's whenever you see them or hear their name, I kind of have, you know, positive memories of just, you know, watching Brescia over the years. James, one of the things that I enjoyed reading when researching Sandro Tonali is that when he was part of the promotion side up from Serie B with Brescia and very much winning Serie B player of the year that season, uh, unlike 
the man that did so six years previously, Marco Verratti, who alongside Insigne and Immobile was part of that incredible Pescara team. And Verratti was whisked off to Paris without playing a game uh, the following season in Serie A. And I dare say there would have been plenty of interest in Tonali, but he stayed with Brescia. Have you got any insight into why he stayed? Was that an, an emotional decision or just a, a lack of sort of obvious options for him? Well, he had options. He has been like Verratti at that stage of uh, his career. Um, yeah, he could have uh, moved in January, but obviously didn't move in the January of their promotion winning season because he wanted to be a part of it and was integral um, to it. Um, you know, he could have left that club um, years ago to join a let's say, under-19 development squad for an Inter, a Juventus or a Milan. I think one of the really fascinating things about uh, researching this piece and talking to some of uh, his youth coaches was how maybe at a national level he wasn't um, as, as widely known as some of the other talents who have since become you know, sort of fixtures in the under-21 side or have played first-team football for top Italian sides earlier in their careers is that because he played for Brescia and Brescia were going through one takeover to the next, they were some years competitive in Serie B, some years they weren't. Um, he did slip through uh, the net a little bit and um, certainly um, didn't play for Italy until under-19 level. Um, and I think was mindful of some of the experiences of of peers that uh, sometimes you can ha- you can get too much too soon. And Brescia was the right place, the right environment for him um, to to experience his first year in Serie A. He would be playing every week, which I think is really really important for a player of that age. Um, and playing in a system as well, because Brescia play uh, a four-four-two diamond, and he's at the, the base of that diamond, um, which I think brings out the best in him. Uh, it allows him to express himself as he wants to express himself on, on a football pitch. I don't think there's much of a guarantee of that um, elsewhere in in City A. Even though, if you look at Juventus, say, yeah, they this season have really alternated between playing a uh, a four three three and a four four two diamond. But could a player at Tonali's age reasonably expect to be playing as he has? I think twenty six games in City A this season at a Juventus and Inter or a Milan. I think it was just a it was a it was very sound advice that he was given um, from from his agent and the people around him to just stay put. Uh, particularly for this season, because I think it's widely anticipated that he will move in the summer. Hey, Michael, let's talk about Italian central midfielders uh, more generally now. But let's start by talking about the man who Tonali shares a haircut with. He shares uh, a a boyhood club with, uh, but potentially not a playing style with. That is Andrea Pirlo. Uh, How much do you think Pirlo changed the mould of Italian central midfield players? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I think it's worth remembering that when Pirlo first rose to prominence in this role, there were very few players around in Europe who were really playing as a deep-line playmaker for top sides. This is before the era of you know Barcelona's incredible dominance. It's before Paul Scholes had kind of changed his position and started to play deeper. I guess maybe the only other one in Europe at this time at a real top level was Xabi Alonso, who was just very obviously a, a deep-line playmaker rather than a defensive midfielder. And for me, Pirlo kind of 
almost kept the dream alive of, of central midfielders who were all about passing rather than just breaking up play and relying on number 10s to do the creativity for them. Um, and Italy, I mean, I would say traditionally their kind of central midfielders were were quite defensive-minded, were quite workman-like. And Pirlo was just the complete opposite. Obviously, he was you know such a, a talented number 10 and and I think captain the under-21 side to, was it Olympic success or under-21 championship success and was seen as, you know, he wasn't that much younger than Totti, but almost seen as the next Totti in that role. And for him to just play so well in a completely different position, I think really did transform expectations. And you can see that with someone like, you know, Tonali, but even Marco Verratti, when he came through a few years ago, he was immediately likened to Pirlo. And I just think he has provided a template for a lot of young, you know, Italian creative players who who previously would would only really think of themselves as number 10s. James, you've already used the word regista. Uh, the lexicon of, of Italian football is pretty much unrivaled. Of course, they have very specific words for, for different types of midfield players, different types of creative players even. Could you run us through some of the classics, some of your favourites? Yeah, happily. I mean, they've got the uh, fantasista, which is uh, the fantasist, the guy who brings the creativity, the imagination um, to, to a side. Um, usually plays in uh, the number 10 role, which also is called the uh, trequatista, so the uh, three-quarter three, the three guy who would play in the final third um, of the pitch. Um, you know, Regista, yeah, famously, and again, I think shows the kind of long tradition of, uh, of this role within, within Italian football. It means, you know, the, the director, the guy, you know, the guy who is... Is sat with the megaphone, basically, you know, Fellini-like, calling uh, calling his actors into into position and, and directing the scene in front of him. Um, yeah, I think that is uh, that is one of the great ones. And then you've got the the mezzala, um, which is the kind of half winger, which yeah, I think maybe touches upon you know what is now part very much part of. Our vocabulary we, we break down games of, of, of midfield players who play in the half spaces you know yeah they're not a central midfielder they're not a winger as the ala uh, in metzala means um yeah they play in that kind of that channel um either side of uh, of a regista um or a mediano a mediano is is the guy who plays in the middle um and you know is another romanticized figure in the kind of lore of italian football and he is the lung-bursting, gut-busting, sacrificing sort of midfield player who will just cover every blade of grass to allow Andrea Pirlo or one of the great kind of number 10s of Italian football, be it Roberto Baggio, Gianni Rivera, um, Francesco Totti, um, to do their business. Um, so, you know, we could have an entire pod uh, devoted to um, the the A to Z of Italian uh, 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 of the of cultural vocabulary. Michael, we kind of touched on it a few times here that historically uh, and maybe even stereotypically, uh, Italian creativity had been based around the number ten position. What would you say more generally was the role of of deeper midfielders? Are we talking destroyers or water carriers? How, how do you characterise the deeper midfielders in Italian football more generally? I'd say they were workers. I, I don't necessarily think they were always really kind of physical, aggressive destroyers. I think those type of players traditionally in Italian football tended to be, you know, your very physical man-marking centre-backs in the times when Italian football was based around, you know, the stoppers and the sweeper. But I think of them as 
being quite canny, quite tactically wily, quite selfless in the way that they played. I mean, the the kind of classic Italian team I think of in, in the relatively modern era would be the, the Roma side that won the Scudetto in 2001. They had Francesco Totti playing as the number, number 10 behind two strikers. And then behind him, they had Damiano Tomasi and Cristiano Zanetti, who were... I mean, I wouldn't say ordinary players. They were both internationals and both very good this season, but they kind of knew their limitations and they were there basically to provide Totti with the freedom to go and do his thing. Um, and I think to a certain extent, you can say the same for the national side over the years. Think of someone like Luigi Di Biagio or Dino Baggio, who were very good players technically. I mean, could push forward and score goals when required. But I think whereas if they were English, maybe they would have been, you know, proper box to box players who, who would try and dominate games. In their systems, they tended to just hang back and, and just do their job for the team. You wouldn't say those players were with the type to dominate games or, or necessarily to play the kind of final passes and the assists, but they were there to protect the defence and keep the side ticking over. And of course, I think Pirlo was a very different player and, and helped to change all that. But yeah, there are some examples of, uh, of the other sort of midfielders, of course. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Yeah, James, who who were the other examples of Italy producing creative deep midfield players before Pirlo came along? We have to go back in time and remember that there was a time when it when defenders just defended and that was it. <laughs> and they would uh they would kick it long uh or uh they would give it to someone who would start linking the play. Um and and that is why you have the the regista I think becoming a much more kind of pronounced role within um within Italian football. And you, you you go back to the likes of um, Bulgarelli, De Sisti, um, who made this role their own at a time when, for example, most teams would play the kind of the the, the same way. We we didn't have the same we didn't have the kind of amount of tactical diversity that we started to see, let's say, um, from the kind of mid nineteen eighties onwards, um, when I think the four four two that Arrigo Sacchi introduced to some extent squeezed both of these roles out of the game um, for for a time and and often um, Italian teams would look for um, let's say that kind of spark of, of of creativity that sense of imagination from one of their wingers often often the the, the winger on the right hand side who would be a left footer who would cut in and play almost as a number ten making a four four two which had width into a 4-4-2 with a diamond. So I think, you know, you look back, there are, there are players, there's the Il Barone, the Baron, Franco Causio, there's uh, Marizico, uh, the, the, the cross between Maradona and Zico, which was Bruno Conti. Um, you've got Claudio Salla as well, who was part of the, the Torino, Torino sides that that won uh, the league in, in, in 1976. Um, so again, you, you, this, is, this is a role that has forebears, but in, in, in some respects, because of uh, tactical trends of things coming in and going out of fashion, um, 
you've seen some players who might have gone on and become great registers um, in different eras, but yeah, ne- were never able to find that role within their team in the time that they were playing. Whereas now, I think, yeah, I remember Michael writing about this uh, the the beginning of this decade when we saw. Udinese, for example, do so well in Serie A and the Francesco Guidolin. And, and Udinese really capitalised for maybe a year or two on the fact that a lot of teams in Serie A were playing 4-4-2 diamonds. You know, they were they were playing with 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 a 10 and sometimes even with a, a deep-lying playmaker as well, rather than three physical destroyers. And yeah, they played 3-5-2 essentially because they, they had the width down the sides and they just they completely killed teams doing that every week in, week out. So I think it, it yeah, in terms of looking at uh, past examples of Pirlo, who yeah, as with Makalele in that holding role, we we he is a player we associate with a vocation on a football pitch rather than just a, a position or an interpretation of a role on a football pitch. It depends very much on the on the zeitgeist of of the mm. time. Well, and, and Michael, a lot of the uh, a lot of the reviews, I suppose, of Pirlo and his career, they go most recent to well that four year spell with Juventus and how excellent he was in that role for that Juventus side. But of course, a decade at Milan before that, he played for Inter Milan uh, briefly at the end of the 90s as well. Is there an extent to which it would be fair to say not every manager that Pirlo had was able to provide a system that got the best out of his fairly unique skill set. Yeah, I think he needed the right manager. And I'm not sure those managers were necessarily prevalent in Italian football at that time. But he was very lucky to work with first Carlo Mazzoni, who is kind of a legendary coach in Italian football and was, was the first to really give him an extended spell in Syria in that deep position. And then obviously Carlo Ancelotti, who, um, to reiterate what I said earlier, there weren't many managers who were really focused on technical football at that time. And with him, it wasn't like he was just playing, playing Pirlo with you know, two or three destroyers around him. I mean, he played a side with Pirlo, Seydorf, Kaka, and sometimes Rui Costa as well. And that was just completely different to how everyone else in Europe was playing at that time. So, yeah, he's the kind of player who needs the right manager. Um, but I think once he had established himself under uh, Ancelotti, you know, he, he was of the level that any manager in Europe would want to take him and would happily build their side around him. Is it a, a sort of truth of Italian football tactics... Uh, James, that, that alongside a Pirlo, you need a Gattuso? Well, I think that was certainly the conclusion drawn after his time with uh, with Milan. I think at Juventus, um, particularly under uh, Antonio Conte's, uh, yeah, the 3-5-2 that he essentially settled on, um, he had, you know, an extra centre-back behind him um, to, to cover should he, he lose the ball. Uh, yeah, Pirlo was someone who was very tidy on the ball, but sometimes would get caught in possession. And having someone else to to help out behind him um, was 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 like an insurance policy. Um, but also, I mean, that midfield at Juventus. Yes, you can point to the kind of ferocity of Arturo Vidal, um, but someone who was very focused on getting forward and joining in on a, in attack and scoring goals for Juventus. I think in his first season was their joint top scorer in all competitions especially was in the second before Juventus ended up signing Carlos Tevez and Marquisio, who was always a very cultured midfield player um, as well. Um, again, who would try and do some of the same things that Vidal did in providing a, a late running threat in the penalty area. And Pogba, you know, Pogba who can do you know, both sides of the game, the physical and the technical at a very 
high level. Um, but I think you know one of the really interesting experiments with Pirlo um, towards the end of his career, if you like, we saw it at Italy's last appearance at the World Cup, which was admittedly short-lived and a long time ago now, in 2014 in Brazil, when uh, Cesare Prandelli was coming to the end of his kind of project with Italy, which was to turn them into a proper footballing side, footballing side in the sense that they wanted to be on the front foot, they wanted to take initiative, they wanted to outpass teams. Um, and I remember the the midfield that he he put uh, on the field against England in Manaus. Um, you know, he wanted the doppio play, as, the, as, as they say in Italy, which I, I suppose we'll just say is the double pivot with, with Marco Verratti um, and Pirlo and De Rossi playing next to them. But De Rossi, you know, De Rossi's not a Gattuso type. De Rossi, as we, we, yeah, I mentioned uh, in, in the piece on Tonali, is someone who at the beginning of his career was box-to-box, could spray the ball accurately, um, long distances, and could also score goals. Um, uh, and at a later stage in his career, would you know essentially be told by Luis Enrique to you know do what Busquets was doing for for Barcelona and drop in between the centre backs and help build the play. Um, so that was a, that was that was a, a side appeal in a in a kind of lighter midfield, if you like, a more technical. Midfield, and uh, unfortunately for for Italy, yeah, they they cocked it up against Costa Rica, and then yeah, Marquezio got sent off against Uruguay, and it was a complete and utter disaster. But Tiki Italia, as we saw it uh, for a very brief brief moment, um, kind of worked, and I think it would have been fascinating to see Pirlo. You know, given he talks about this in in his book that he had an offer from Barcelona when Pep Guardiola was there. Pep Guardiola, who'd also played for Brescia, let's not forget, um, to go and play alongside Busquets, Xavi towards the end of his career, Iniesta at that stage. I mean, that would have been that would have been an even more pass-heavy midfield than the one that would clock up nine hundred passes in twenty minutes against Sporting Gijon. So you know, it's. I think he could do it without, um, uh, certainly an early stage of earlier stage of his career um, than the one that used to get rushed on Champions League nights towards the end of his career. Um, certainly could have done it in a in a in a more technically kind of accented midfield. Um, yeah, say in his mid mid to late twenties. Harry's sponsors the Zonal Marking Podcast. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. And their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close comfortable shave that's a weighted ergonomic handle five precision engineered blades a rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover i've recently received a harry's trial set and it's fair to say it's changed my shaving life forever i feel fresh i look fresh in all honesty i look about 10 years old whether that's a good or a bad thing i'm not quite sure but as a listener of zonal marking you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, 
and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash zonal marking right now. That's harrys.com slash zonal marking. Yeah, quite a, a PLO heavy section there, which is understandable given how much he dominated the Italian game, both in Syria and the national team between the very beginning of the 2000s and uh, his departure from Juventus at the end of the 2014-15 season. But that does mean that he hasn't actually played in Europe for, well, going on five or so years now. So, Michael, uh, what about the last few years? How have you noticed uh, Italian midfield structures and combinations start to change in the more recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think James had it right when he mentions Prandelli. I mean, Prandelli, for me, was possibly the first time I've seen Italy with a manager that was just so determined to make them a more proactive side. At times in Euro 2012, when they'd have Pirlo, Marchisio, De Rossi and Montalivo, that was a world away from what I associated, um, you know, Italian midfields being in the 1990s and even the 2000s, uh, with the exception of Pirlo, of course. And I think, in a way, that probably came about because they didn't have that kind of classic number 10 anymore after Totti retired. Um, they tried a few different guys in that role, but I think eventually they realised, you know, rather than basing it around the number 10 and having some workmanlike players behind them, we've got to have almost, you know, creativity in numbers with a, a bit more of a cohesive midfield. I think that obviously the Prandelli era ended quite disappointingly um, with the exit in, in World Cup 2014. And I think Italy, to a certain extent, have struggled to find their identity there. But I think they've they've almost, they've moved away from really what we would consider traditional Italian football um, the way that even they played under Trapattoni relatively recently. I think they are, it is a more similar style of football to what you see across the uh, the rest of Europe. And I think that in turn has meant they're producing a good number of very technically minded young players. Well, key in the current Italy side, although it strikes me that he could have somewhat more than the 36 caps that he has. Marco Verratti made his debut in 2012, which was just after that season I mentioned with Pescara uh, winning the Serie B title with Zeman, I believe, in charge. But he's never played in Serie A because he's been with PSG since then. James, what's the sort of general attitude towards Verratti uh, across Italian football? Well, as you mentioned, never playing in Serie A, when you know Juventus were gazumped by uh, a Paris Saint-Germain team that had just been taken over by the Qataris, all in the second year under the the, the Qatari ownership, uh, and Leonardo basically outbidding them at the last minute um, to take him uh, him away uh, from Serie A. I think I wouldn't say absence makes the heart go uh, grow fonder, but in in some respects there has always been this kind of uh, idea about Verratti and projecting this this hope that he would be the successor to Pirlo. It hasn't really happened for him uh, at national team level. Um, you know, the only major tournament he went to was the World Cup in in 2014. Uh, he made a couple of appearances in in what that three game stretch that uh, they had in Brazil. And then he's he's either uh, struggled with injuries. That's why he missed uh, the the 2016 European Championships, where you know we talked. Uh, Michael was talking about that Italy uh, Italy struggling to find an identity post Prandelli. Um, you know, Conte's was Conte's was very much the little war machine, win at all costs, three five two with Parolo, De Rossi, and Giaccherini in midfield. Um, since then, uh, you know, Verratti, when fit, has been integrated 
either by Jean Piero Ventura disastrously or uh, or Roberto Mancini. But you know, this is a guy who has um, has still only made what two starts in major tournaments. He's only f- uh, started and finished eighteen games for Italy in an eight-year um, international career. Which you know, given how many international fixtures Gianni Infantino crams into uh, into into the football schedule, is is quite something. I think there also there is also an element of you know Verratti's at a stage of his career now um, where. Yes, he's won countless titles with with Paris Saint-Germain, but maybe he's tarnished by association of being a guy who's about to turn 28 and has never he's never gone further than a Champions League quarterfinal. You know, even even failing in that quarterfinal that they played against um, you know Pellegrini City side, um, which you know at that stage wasn't seen as a as a, as a particularly great or was going through the second season maybe under 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 Pellegrini where they weren't all that great in the league. So I think Verratti has had some pretty good nights in Europe. I seem to remember a game against Chelsea where he was he was outstanding. Um but as one kind of as one kind of top flight pretty illustrious coach said to me once about him, he's always getting booked and he doesn't score. Uh, and you know that's not his role. You know he is a guy who's there to pull the strings and dictate the tempo in midfield. You know it's, I think similar things have been said about his now international teammate Jorginho. Um, but does does Verratti affect games in the way that Pirlo affected games? Because you know Pirlo certainly was able to score free kicks, but you know there were certain signature moves I would say to during his time at Milan, particularly at Juventus, where he would always have this kind of. He would play the ball in for Stefan Licksteiner, the ring back, to just cop up at the far post and score. And Juventus would get maybe five or six goals a season like that. Has Verratti ever done that uh, for PSG? Has he ever done that um, at international level for Italy? I think we're still waiting. I think that's one of the reasons why people are quite excited about this Mancini side, because we might finally get to see it. I thought going into that answer that this might be a case of what I like to call the Owen Hargreaves vortex, where maybe in, maybe in Italy they haven't quite uh, got to know uh, Verratti as much because he hasn't been playing his football at, at the top level in Italy. But I, I very much left realising that it is a, quite a different situation, perhaps. But you did mention Jorginho. So, Michael, let's talk about him. Uh, of course, we're talking about Italian central midfield players. Uh, this is the 22-capped uh, Italian central midfield player Jorginho, uh, born in Brazil, but moved over to Italy aged 15 and is a naturalised Italian citizen and part of their national team, the Azzurri's midfield. So what's his place in all this? Yeah, I mean, I think he's very much an Italian central midfielder. Obviously, he's got a Brazilian name. He was in Brazil for yeah 15 years, as you mentioned. But I mean, his whole youth career was spent at Verona. He's played his entire career in Serie B and in Serie A. Um, so yeah, I mean, Italy actually took a while to really, I mean, use him to realize how good he was, I think. And, um, I mean, I think he's, he's, um, there's been a lot of focus on him at Chelsea. And I think to a certain extent, that's because he hasn't been the type of central midfielder or defensive midfielder that Chelsea have used in that position over the years. And I think to a certain extent, he struggled to get to grips with the Premier League at first, but certainly the way he played for Napoli was, you know, maybe even more metronomic and even more influential than the way Pirlo played with Milan. He didn't play the big diagonal passes into attack like Pirlo did, but he was just constantly involved and constantly setting the tempo and dragging opponents up the pitch before poking the ball in behind them and and just a very clever player. So, yeah, I mean, I I think people, maybe people don't realise how 
how Italian he is, if that makes sense. He's not someone like uh, Camoranesi, who, who came over as an Argentine, uh, I think played a few years in Serie A before he, uh, you know, was then prepared to make himself available for Italy. He, he you know, Jorginho is a very different case. He he was coached in, in Italy throughout his youth. So, yeah, I think he's another symbol of, uh, you know, a, maybe not a young Italian player anymore, but... Um, yeah, so the the new generation of Italian central midfielder, if you like. Yeah, so James, we've got a really interesting situation here. If we just look at the midfield positions for the Italian national team, we've discussed Verratti and we've discussed Jorginho, and it strikes me that uh, despite their skill set, there might be uh, something missing there in terms of what they could do in the in the middle and perhaps the final third. Um, more specifically in an Italian shirt. But just looking at some of the players who have been capped uh, over the the last year or two or three, you know, these guys, Jorginho and Verratti, are 28 and 27 respectively. So by no means in the twilight of their career. But then you have a clutch of Italian midfield players between 20 and 24 years old. And it, it seems like a rich crop. You know, we've talked about Tonali, but the other names, Zaniolo, Sensi, Pellegrini, Barella and Castrovilli, who I believe you've just written about as well. Uh, this sort of stra- do, do these guys have maybe the balance that the Italian midfield needs to become more complete over the next few years? Can you talk me through some of those names? Well, I think it's a very technical group of players. Um, you know, I don't think you would look at any of those names that you've just mentioned and say, Oh, that's a Gattuso style figure or an Antonio Conte style figure. Yeah, they are all players who, in Castrovilli's case, and there's an interview with him uh, on the site, someone who is Musa Dembele-esque in his ability to kind of wriggle through traffic in uh, in central areas. Um, yeah, has kind of dribbling figures that you would uh, expect from a winger or a number 10 uh, rather than someone who plays as, as a number 8. You've got Stefano Sensi, who uh, I remember uh, last year I spoke to Kevin Prince-Boateng just prior to his uh, career-defining move to Barcelona, um, uh, in which um, he said that Sensi was like a little Verratti. And uh, in some respects, yeah, size, position, he is, but someone who is also comfortable playing further up the pitch, um, I thought made Inter really exciting in the... In the first third of the season before his injury in the Derby d'Italia, um, you've got Barella, who's more box to box, someone who yeah should and I think is aiming to score more goals. Um, probably the less technically um, clean uh, player of uh, of the ones mentioned. Um, I think the the really interesting thing is is that Mancini, when when Italy really hit their straps in qualifying, they were perfect throughout they won every game albeit against modest opponents not that that stopped Giampiero Ventura from failing to qualify for the the uh, the World Cup in in 2018 but um, he seemed to have really settled on his his midfield which was with Jorginho and um, uh, Verratti as the the two kind of playmakers and Barella there to kind of join in the attack um, and you know sort of cover a lot of ground and help out in the defensive phase, and and now he's uh, he's got so many options to kind of alternate that, but kind of keep the same style, which is to have, you know, Sensi and Tonali, for example, playing, or um, you know, combining those with Castrovilli. There's also Manuel Locatelli who um, who broke through it at Milan around the same time as 
as Donna Rummer. Um, had a great game against Juventus, great start of the season. Um, and then, you know, as a lot of players have done at Milan in recent years, uh, found the turbulence, the lack of stability, a, a difficult environment in which to kind of develop and has gone to Sassuolo, plays for a, a really exciting coach, Roberto Di Zerbi. Um, and uh, looks the part in terms of, you know, being able to kind of dictate to an opponent through a passing game, through possession football. And I think that is is something that Mancini acknowledges, wants to make the most of, believes, as Michael was saying um, in a previous podcast about Inter's treble winning side, where it's, it's not enough anymore for, for teams to go to tournaments or uh, fight league campaigns by just being good defensively. They they have to try and break down teams, and, uh, and certainly that's the case in in international football. Um, uh, I think they've got the the parts to do that. Um, I think uh, yeah, the only question mark for Italy at the moment is 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 who plays centre forward. Um, is it Immobile or, or Belotti? Uh, can Immobile do it in the Champions League or in international football? And they've often played really well when they haven't played with the striker, when they've played Insigne, Benedeschi and Chiesa up front with that midfield that we've mentioned. So, yeah, they've been pretty good to watch Italy under Mancini and, and, and plenty of signs of encouragement. Is that something that, that you're encouraged by, Michael, uh, Mancini's Italy side? I mean, Euro 2020 obviously postponed until the summer of 2021, but heading into it, if it had gone ahead, they were looking at being sort of the seventh favourites for the title, well away from the sort of quite condensed pack of favourites, England, France, Belgium, Germany, uh, and then Netherlands and Spain to a slightly lesser extent. Uh, what do you expect or what do you hope to see from Mancini's Italy going forward? Yeah, I mean, whenever I've seen them, I've been fairly impressed. I guess a lot of people who remember Mancini primarily for what he did with Manchester City would not think of him as a particularly attack-minded manager. But I think he's he's shown a lot of faith in, in some good young players. I mean, someone like Federico Chiesa, who's still a, a relatively young player for for Fiorentina, I think he's 22. He's still kind of developing into a top-class player. He's already got 17 caps for the national side. And I think that shows that, you know, Mancini is is prepared to, to yeah, show faith and maybe take a gamble on some young players. And, you know, I, I guess this Italy side is maybe lacking a couple of really established names to, to maybe guide the youngsters and, and base the whole side around. But this is a good generation. I, I think compared to maybe four or five years ago, you do look through the, the likes of... You know, Barella and Zaniolo and Tonali, who we've we've been talking about today, and, and see that this is, yeah, a good group of players and hopefully a couple of them will develop into really top-class players in the coming years. What is the expectation level, James? As Michael said, it's actually quite a young-looking squad. I think in the most recent squad, only four players aged 30 or above, which, you know, connoisseurs of, of some of the classic Italian sides and, and title-winning sides doesn't look quite the same. Uh, is there a sense of patience amongst uh, Italian football fans that actually we've got this group of players between, let's say, 20 and 27, but it might take a while for, for them to sort of shake out into a, a proper team that can contend for titles? I think what was encouraging about Mancini's uh, Euro qualifying campaign was how quickly they assimilated uh, a new identity, which I think is approximating what we saw on the on the Prandelli, just uh, acknowledging that uh, times have changed in football. Um, you have to play, a, uh, you don't have to play a certain style, but you have to be progressive. 
Um, and uh, and this generation, which you know, there's going to be a piece, an interview coming uh, on the site in the near future with the kind of the the technical coordinator of Italian of the Italian Football Federation, who was put in place by Arrigo Sacchi. Um, and uh, Italy, while they haven't won anything uh, under 21 or under 19 level. Um, have certainly come on leaps and bounds um, in in recent years. Um, they've they've reached the under nineteen European Championship final on a couple of occasions um, and have lost on penalties. Uh, most recently, I think against uh, against Portugal, um, they've reached under twenty one semis and uh, an under twenty World Cup semis as well. Which uh, yeah, Italy, I think. Maybe Spain have overtaken them um, in in recent years with the generation and the the uh, production line that they had, particularly at the beginning of the last decade. But yeah, you know, they, they they are the team that have won the most under twenty one European Championships, and and while they haven't done that um, for a while, they've gone they've gone pretty close with the teams that have had, you know, Moise Keane up front with Zaniolo as well, with Tonali pulling the strings. Um, they've got they've got some very good. I mean. They've got a lot. Of, they're stacked in the goalkeeper position um, as well at youth level, and they've got a number of very good centre backs coming through. And I, I think that instruction from from Saki and, and the people he put in place to all play, not maybe with the same system, but with the same principles, with the same concepts, um, has has seen a group of players come through, and they're better prepared than uh, let's say some of the. The ones that went before, and that they're playing more time, they're playing more games at international level. That was one of the things that that Saki wanted to change to get them more experience, so they were they were better prepared for first team football at club level, but also more used to playing at international level. And I would say that Italy were looking at the European Championships as they were this summer as a free hit, uh, and maybe look at harnessing um, you know home advantage with those yeah first three games in Rome at the Olimpico and then seeing how far they get. But their, their main aim was to be com- competitive for the next World Cup in Qatar and and, and maybe, maybe challenge for that. Because I think even though there's a very, very bright generation coming through, which is quite evenly distributed uh, through, uh, through positions, um, there's still an acknowledgement that your Spains, your Germanys have better established difference makers who've got more Champions League experience. Um, and yeah, I think that's one of the things that when people look at this this squad at the moment, even some of the guys who've, who who we've written about in profiles for, for the Athletic, Chiesa, Tonali, uh, for example, Castrovilli, um, even players like Orsolini, Locatelli, they haven't played Champions League football yet. And I think that's really key to, to development and getting, a, getting the belief you need to go far in international competitions. It's been absolutely excellent to discuss Italian football and the changing roles of central midfielders and the central midfield talent that is coming through. We've talked about Tonali and Pirlo. You've mentioned many others as well. And you can read all about these guys, Tonali, Castrovilli, Chiesa, you've mentioned as well. when you go to the athletic site, you search for James Horncastle and there's a whole backlog of excellent content all about Italian football. If you're thirsty for more and then Coxie's got his own vibe on his author's page as well. All sorts of good stuff being produced multiple times per week and not just these two, but so many other good football writers and US sports as well. If you're into your American sports, that is theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. If 
If you haven't subscribed already, you'll get a free trial so you can hoover up plenty of content in that time and work out whether you'd like to be a subscriber in the long term. It's not really my place to say it, but after listening to the experts, it feels like there's a real elephant in the room that there's been this move to modernising the Italian game and moving away from certain throwbacks in, in Italian football history. But if we've got a stacked and loaded central midfield pool of talent, surely we've got to be calling for the return of the diamond at some point. Surely we've got to be returning to our roots and we need to start uh, having a word with Mancini about that. No, th- Thank you so much to James and to Michael for chatting me through this fascinating topic. And thank you so much for listening as well. Make sure you're subscribed to the Zonal Marking podcast for all future episodes. Make sure you delve into our extensive backlog now of topics, all sorts of different themes touched on on this podcast. And make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic where there is all sorts of good stuff going on. And join us again next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast.